This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Christina Engelhart. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Christina is a multimedia artist, along with famed Italian director Federico Fellini. Christina experienced contact from non-human entities over an odyssey spanning years and continents. I always knew that my grandmother was a medium. So I saw her doing tarot readings, card readings, I should actually say, since I was a child. And I was fascinated by it. She said, wait, well, you're too young. I learned it from my grandmother. You're going to learn it from me. The first granddaughter passes this legend on. So I was pestering her every time we went to Germany until finally, by the age of like six or eight, she says, okay, this is, she went through the whole deck in a five minute class course, I should say. And it just opened my mind. And then I remembered those symbols. And from that moment on, all I did was get books on esoteric and practice readings and offer anyone a reading. And I just did it over and over. And by the time I was 10, my mother would have the neighbors come over wanting readings from me. Very much like the book House of Cards. Uh, no, I think it's a House of Spirits is a Spanish book. It, very much like that for me. And I just thought it was totally normal. I didn't have many friends, so I found that reading for adults was so much more interesting. So that's sort of my background. I Then by the age of 12, I bought every book on astrology. Then by 15, I already considered myself a professional astrologer because I was just learning every aspect, every combination of every planet. And while this is all going on, I start reading esoteric books. And of course, I became fascinated with Carlos Castaneda. And I read every time. Time he came out of the book, I was well versed on Castaneda and the Tonal and the Naguan and Don Juan and Don Gennaro. And that was such a great, fascinating moment because it was my first book that talked to me about something other than. So the astrology and the tarot, that was tools that helped me tune in my esoteric nature because I found that when I would read or look at a chart, things would just come out of my mouth. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even think that. Where did that come from? And that was happening on a regular basis. And then I knew, and I also knew to trust that. So that was very, very important for me. Trust this instinct. In fact, when I was thinking too much, I was off. When I just popped out of my mouth, I surprised everyone else, including myself. But lo and again, I, the whole idea of aliens, I was open to it. It was all anything esoteric and reincarnation. I was already becoming more and more versed in it. But the thing is with Castaneda's books, I thought, wow, there is actually an art form to this. Here are these um, censors, these magicians, these shamans that are sort of human connecting to another dimension and yet being very human and yet having a very active communication. So I, I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Never to know that in, in a decade, I would actually be front and center to the very persons I'm speaking of. So this goes on. I, you know, I'm in the, I decide that I'm very, uh, besides being a very esoteric, artistic person, painting, I dabble in acting. I dabbled in anything artistic because it just felt I felt free to doing it. I was good at mathematics. I think astrology and astronomy, doing the charts for people was very, very helpful. 
So this was already my background uh, in art class. I would draw spaceships and aliens and these faces that the teacher and everyone say, you're a good artist. Why do you have to draw these weird artwork? And I just said, no, this is just coming to me. Lo and behold, some of those faces of those, if you want to call them alien or interdimensional creatures, later on, they actually came to me and they were the same faces. So I thought, wow, this is quite interesting that there is nothing random. So when I moved to New York, I had a psychic astrologer. I called her my psychic mama and we shared a lot of, uh, she taught me astrology. I taught her what I knew in cards. So I met her when I was 17. So Jerry DeMarlo was a major influence and she read for me and we would meet often and not like my mother, by the way, back to this inherent gift from my skipping a generation. My mother saw her mother read throughout the war and predict or foretell who's going to come back from war and how are this going to, that going to happen. But my mother had no interest in it. And now here I am and I have daughters and they see me do readings all the time, but they don't have the proclivity like, Oh mom, I have to learn this. I want to be an intuit. Like I had so wanted. So as my mother had seen me growing up doing readings, she never held me back because she knew it, came, it was this gift. So that was very nice that through all that I went through, I had the support of my family. They just left me alone doing the metaphysical arts. And um, so now back to calling Jerry DeMarlo, my psychic mama, she was someone I could actually talk about aspects and astrology and, and, and so forth. Her ability for psychic um, perception was phenomenal. She was born 1919. So she could have been my grandmother in a certain sense. And she was just delightful. She was a real hoot. And she would say, oh, um, when you leave here, you're going to bump into somebody and you're going to be on a plane tomorrow evening heading to here and there. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? Boom. It, she nailed it each and every time. So now from the age of 17 to 23, as I'm in and out of New York, modeling, acting, and also living there, seeing her on a constant basis. She knew some of the cast of characters that I was in relationships with or artistic pursuits. One day, and it was 1984, I would say late August, she's doing one of her thousands of readings. And this time she was very different than she's ever been before. She put down the cards, looked at the planets and said, get out of here. I go, what? No, no. I mean, get out of here. Get out of New York. Leave New York. You have to be in Los Angeles by October 20th. You're going to meet a famous Italian director and you're going to hear voices from outer space. You have to go. You have to go. Go. And she cursed me and she literally, she never did this before. This was like my, my better half. And she's literally throwing me out of, and she goes, you're not coming back to New York. And I had an apartment. I had a job. I had a whole life. And she was serious. So, I, I mean, I've never doubted her psychic phenomena. So I call a friend and I sell this, I sell that, I get a car. Within two weeks, I loaded up a car with my possessions, gave my apartment, gave my furnishings, gave everything away, loaded up the car and drive with really no job, no this, no that. I just drove. And a friend of mine who also was the person who introduced me to Carlos Castaneda books, he said, let me come for the ride for you. I don't want you to drive alone. Great. And he would fly back. So 
as we're in the car and we're talking, that was he was my best buddy, especially on the esoteric realm. And as we're driving to Los Angeles, as soon as I get to Los Angeles, things start becoming very unusual. Like I were driving and I say, I have to stop the car and, and I pull off. I'm on sunset. By the way, if you're driving across country and you see sunset, you pull off on it. Let me tell you, you have 50 miles more of sunset. Sunset, actually. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be right here on the beach. <laughs> this, is for, this is before GPS or, you know, whatever little maps that we had. So out of driving, you know, the, the five days straight, you know, morning, noon, and night to, uh, you know, other than stopping for sleeping. I, at one point I'm on sunset and I'm get to Olive and I just turn the car on Olive and which is near the comedy store. And there was the Le Mondrian hotel. And I just turn on Olive and I pull into a street parking sign that says, you cannot park here, uh, residents only. And it was curbside parking with numbers and number 13 was available. And I just pulled into it. And my friend said, what are you doing? Why are you stopping? I said, I have to get out of the car. I, I, I don't know. I got to get out of the car. I just stretching because we were driving since seven in the morning. So get out, stretch. And I hear someone yelling over the fence. Hey, lady, you can't park here. This is a reserve. So I guess it was the property manager because somebody seemed to be on the premise of the property. And I yelled out just blatantly. Yeah, but nobody has apartment number 13. And he said, yeah, that's right. I said, I want to see it. <laughs> it was a furnished apartment. Within that moment, I'm by the afternoon, I was fully with my little suitcase and what tchotchkes I had in the car. I was in a furnished apartment, apartment number 13, <laughs> and Olive and Sunset. And there was my home. And it's from that moment on, things started falling into place. Lo and behold, I'm there. Now, that was now September. So here we go. We have September. Now we come to October. And from the first month and a half that I was there, you know, I, what few friends I knew from the, my past visiting Los Angeles, I called. But I really knew like two or three people. And here we are. It's now October 20th. Now, before the October 20th, I had a, one of my only friends she did not like where she lived. She didn't feel safe. So she said, can I stay with you? Because her car got destroyed until I can afford another apartment or something. I said, yeah, we converted the dining room into a little room. So I felt, oh, I have, I have a friend here. I'm not, because LA, if you don't know Los Angeles, it is daunting. It closes in the evening. If you don't know where to go or who, it's not like New York City, which is 24 hours open, hip and happening. LA, if you don't know the in crowd, there's nobody on the streets. It's a very different scenario and very isolating. So I was very happy to have my friend Brink Stevens, actress of um, sci-fi sci and horror movies, take, uh, take the dining room as her room. So that day, I, and she knew that October 20th, October 20th, and that day she said, oh, I'm going out to lunch with friends. Do you want to join? I said, no, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm supposed to wait for something. This is the day. And so she said goodbye and left for her luncheon meeting. And then I thought, wow, that's uh, maybe I should have gone with her. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm sitting by the phone. I should have maybe gone with her. I didn't know what was going to happen. She's gone for the day. And it's now four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, 635. The phone rings. And it's a girl 
that I met in New York. She didn't like me. I didn't like her. She did a few very not nice things that at that time I thought was in poor taste. And she called and she said, I got your number from a, a mutual friend. You don't like me and I don't like you, but I have a dinner with an Italian director tonight. And right away I thought, oh, this is it. And she didn't know I knew this. So I said, okay. And normally I would have said, take a hike, girl, and hang up on her because we didn't like each other. She had done some very unfavorable things. And uh, I thought I'd never hear from her again. And here and behold, she's the one who's inviting me to this dinner. And she goes, where's your address? I gave it to her. She says, we'll come pick you up. Okay. So by uh, 7.38, the car comes. My buzzer rings. I go out, I get into a limo, and inside the limo is a couple of people. There's the driver. There's this woman, which she, uh, Federico called her Sophie. So we're um, Sybil, I should say, Sybil. And, of course, Federico Fellini and his entourage, two of his entourage, Maurizio Grimaldi, Andrea De Carlo, uh, Sybil, the driver, Fellini, myself. And... You know, I, I, for a moment, she had uh, told me it would be Zeffirelli. And I, of course, this was not Zeffirelli, which he's a fab fabulous director in his own right. And I was, oh, Mr. Fellini, oh, what a great honor to meet you. And he couldn't have been more nice or pleasant. And, and then we drive to have dinner and we sit at the restaurant at uh, Trader Vic's, which no longer is. It's now a hotel built on top of it. So we're having this dinner and Sybil says to Mr. Fellini, oh, you know, Christina does tarot and astrology like if it was a bad thing. And he says, oh, I like that. Well, she also does tarot. Oh, I like that. And then when she realizes that he likes what she's saying, she goes, but I'm spiritual. And she opens her purse and takes out a crystal. Like, okay, now I'm better than her because I got a crystal. And I open my purse and I take out a crystal. Okay, I got a crystal. And then she opens her purse, takes out another crystal. And I open my purse and I hand one to Federico, Andrea, uh, Maurizio, and I pass. Now we all have a crystal. Okay, we're all spiritual. So we were having this little cat fight, crystal cat fight, spiritual. And it was quite, Federico was laughing because I found it kind of ironically funny and so did he. Now, while we're having this dinner, I don't know this, unbeknownst to me, the reason why I was chosen to have be a part of this dinner, I did not know, and I wouldn't know for a while, and then I wouldn't know the real reason years later, which I found um, unique because I asked uh, Sybil, because by the way, Sybil and I have remained friends and she finally told me why, and it was a strange reason, but okay, listen, it was the connecting force, so so be it. And after we finished our dinner at Trader Vic's, this all seemed very harmless. Uh, they're driving me back to my apartment to drop me off, and then I, I have to think quick because I'm thinking, okay, I came all the way to LA for a dinner, um, can I invite everyone up to see a slideshow? I take pictures of around the world and I've traveled extensively and I have this little slideshow and Federico says, sure. And he, his, whatever he says, his entourage says, okay. And of course, Sybil says, no, 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 I have to do my thing. I'm a dancer. I have to rehearse tomorrow. And so she says, good night. And the car is going to drop her off. And I'm like glad because just her energy was throwing me off. 
So now I have the three men in my living room and I move a painting off the wall. I turn the projector on. And so the whole sides of the wall images with George Winston music playing. And of course there's images of Tulum, Chichen Itza, Uxmal. And Federico says, oh my God, you know, you know, you heard the voices. Did you, did, did. And I said, um, voices? Um, well, I have my own voices. I, I, I didn't understand what he was saying. And then the show with the slideshow was finished. That was lovely. Thank you very much. We're leaving. So then I'm thinking, oh my God, I did. I came all the way here for a dinner and the slideshow, it can't end. So they're gone. And I proceed to stay up all night with using my tarot, my iching, my ruins, my coins, uh, astrology. I wanted to figure out what that moment meant. And I just scribbled everything down on pages and pages of paper and all through the night because I thought, wow, I had the feeling that they were leaving the next day or within a day or two. So I just felt like, no, there was something, I can't let this opportunity go. I didn't know what the opportunity was, but I, I consulted my esoteric philosophy. So now it's crack of dawn and I have pages and pages and I stuff them in a 11 by 14 vanilla envelope. And I'm like, okay, now where is he staying? What hotel? I'm going to call every single one and Hopefully, this celebrity has left his real name because often celebrities have a code name. Um, and lo and behold, the first hotel I call, his name was listed. Oh, my God. That was like I was ready to call and go through the phone book and every single one. The first one, the Hilton Hotel. So there we go. So I jump in my car. I drive to the Hilton. I'm standing now in my little jogging suit at the concierge. And I was just going to leave this for him at the front desk. So there's a line. I'm kind of just my head down on the ground holding onto this package. And I'm just in line. There's maybe three or four people in front of me. And the person in front of me turns around, grabs my shoulders, and starts shaking me. And I look up. It's Federico. And he goes, you, it's you, it's you. You're the one. I go, I'm the one, uh, and then I hand him the envelope, and he pulls me aside, and he sits me on a little lounge area. He goes, the voices, they told me to be down here exactly at this time. They said the chosen one would be there, and I said, chosen for what? To come with us, and I said, okay, come with you where? He goes, let's go up to the room. We have to meet, so we go up to the room, and there's his other two, the uh, Andrea and Maurizio, and they're like, her? And of course, I was there, the, this voice using the telephone had told them that the one who was going to be part of their, they called the spiritual one, was part of the journey. And there I showed up. So I, this was a sign. And then Federico goes on to tell me that he hears these voices. They call him. They use the telephone. They're draining. It's a metallic sound. He's telling me what it's all about. And as he's describing this and he's telling him, you know, we were told that somebody from our entourage knows a dancer, which was Sybil, and she had to come that night and bring someone for dinner. She couldn't come alone. She had to bring some, a female. It didn't matter. She had to bring a woman. And Sybil had called everyone from her phone book. And of course, she called me from the bottom of her poo-poo list, someone she didn't like, but she had to, to make this dinner. She couldn't come alone. Now, then I go on to say, well, you know, it's funny that you're telling me this, 
my psychic in New York told me to be here at this day and I would meet a famous Italian director and hear voices. And just again, now this is the word voices came up. And he goes on to say, as he begins to explain, he's on in search for Carlos Castaneda and he's tried to meet him, but now he has to go to Tulum to further the interview for a future film possibility. And I said, oh my God, I've read all his books. So I'm feeling like this kinship, I know what's going on. And the phone rings. So he says, one moment, and go, he goes right, as he's two feet away from me, he lifts to pick up the phone and you could see him um, wobbling sort of, he's not, you could see that this phone call is distressful because he's losing his balance. He seems very shooken up and he just repeats whatever he's hearing and then hangs up. And he said, you're the one. You're the, they, they called me then the spiritual one. Then later on, they called me the physical one. I had different uh, physical one, the spiritual one. And then they gave me a color. We were, we were all eventually given colors as names, but not right at that moment. I think a few days later. So as they're telling me about they're going to meet Carlos Castaneda, in the jungles of Tulum. And of course, I had been to Tulum several times just out of feeling that it's a magical place that I had been to in my past, just randomly, go figure, you know, when you're a traveler, you you go to unique places. So that was, in a nutshell, the, the, the adjust of how I got from that October 20th meeting, the dinner, now it's the next day, and now I'm getting more information. Now I'm hearing about what their plans are. And this is where Federico starts to tell me that he's been a fan of Castaneda's for a long time. And he had received a message from Carlos five to ten years earlier saying that um, he had spoken with Don Juan and Don Juan, after they had just finished watching one of Federico's movies and Don Juan told Carlos, you're going to meet that director. And he foresaw something. So Carlos says, so I'm calling to let you know that. So Federico was, oh, very interesting. Um, let me read your books. And then after he read his books, he was like, oh my God, I could do a movie on this. This is my kind of movie making. And Federico at that time, he had just finished he was just wrapped La Naveva, and it did not come to this. It was, I thought, a wonderful movie, but it did not have the same hoopla that some of his other's movies had. So he was sort of now left to directing some Japanese commercials of tuna fish and orange. He was not, he was having a hard time as a director getting the finances to do some of his great projects because he himself was a director that uh, had a runaway budget, did not let producers on the set, never showed a script. Um, and he, he was difficult. He was a difficult director. And if you got a masterpiece from him, you were so lucky. But his last couple of films did not pull in the budgets. And the one thing that started helping the producer, but not Federico, was the deals they were making, which because, by the way, when Federico first did his directorial debuts and projects, 
there was no video, you know, this you can make, because uh, directors now, they get uh, profits on the actual filming, if it's released to, you know, VHS back then or DVDs or such, you know, other releases, they didn't have that. So Federico also felt that he should have made a lot more money, but technology grew underneath him and he wasn't savvy to understand that. But fine. So when he realized that Carlos Castaneda would be a perfect subject matter for a film, he realized, now I have to go find them. So in his seeking out Carlos, they had met once in Rome, and then Carlos said, fine, I'll meet you in Los Angeles. And that's why he came, and it was all in lieu of it. And of course, he is here, there is no Carlos to show up, and Carlos says, you have to meet me in the jungles of Tulum. I'm going to give you a road trip. I'm going to take you somewhere. So they were going to fly in the next two days, and Federico wanted me to come. Now, this is where it got a little tricky, because I'm the new kid now. I just showed up. Um, Sybil was also going on the trip. And remember, she was like, what do you mean Christina's coming? I'm the one going on the trip. So everyone gave me a hard time. And Federico said, all right, we already have the tickets. We're already going. You know what? Even though you're welcome, we want you to come. He felt that sort of between his his assistant, you know, his, his little entourage and Sophie, he was felt like, you know what? We'll see you when we come back. We're going to make this trip, but we're going to go. And then I took him to the airport and that was, you know, okay, goodbye. And I was just like, you know what? I drove across this country. I'm going to drive to Tulum. So I pack up my car with food and whatnot. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find these people. Just like I got, I felt like I found them. Then I'm going to let this be my magical mystery tour. And then I proceed to drive to the Yucatan and Tulum. And of course I run into them again, which blew everyone away. And then of course they had then had been making their own road trips to tell me that they had never run into Carlos and it was a wild goose chase and that, well, they're flying back to LA. So now I have to two day drive back to LA. So that trip in itself for me was basically to see him on the beachside in the hotel, by the hotel. And I did not really understand, but I was told that when they described to Carlos that, why are you in, um, you know, when they, when they, oh, sorry, they did meet Carlos in the jungle finally and told him about the voices and Carlos, he was very surprised because he felt like he, what, what just happened? And he literally ran out the room never to be seen again. So now this was quite interesting. And the voices started calling me and saying, tell the green one, because they gave us colors. Federico was green. Andrea was blue. Moritz was um, orange. No, I'm sorry, yellow. I was the pink one. So we, and then there was uh, the violet one was in Rome, Tullio Pinelli. So we, we had these colors. So we referred to each other as these colors names because that's what the voices had mentioned. Now, back in Los Angeles, the voices now, including me, 
said that we had to to communicate with them. And by the way, to leave Carlos Castaneda alone, that they have nothing to do with Castaneda. So in a way, Federico was extremely disappointed because the producer, Maurizio Grimaldi's father, was paying for all this uh, expenses of traveling and such because he was going to get another movie out of this. And at the moment, there might be another movie, but it wasn't going to be with Carlos. So this became very, very confusing. And Federico was very disheartened with the voices on top of it and with me hanging around. And now we have to have this musical night. These voices said, you have to bring your entourage together and everyone gets an instrument. And Sybil was there as well. And then my roommate said she received a call. So I brought her in on board. Brink Stevens came. And so we went and bought musical instruments and we sit in the hotel room trying to see if musical instruments and the colors and whatnot were uh, a link to maybe some direct connection. So whereas we're banging on instruments that we didn't know how to play or whatnot was, was quite funny, but I'm going to take now a step aside from that actual story and tell you why I think and what I think that meant, why these voices were wanting music, wanting us to place, make sounds, why they gave us colors as identity and what it could have meant to not be with Castaneda because we were sure that Castaneda was behind this a menagerie of uh, explorations. Now, Federico was having, so that's more sort of, sort of how I got on board. Federico got on board because once he decided to do the film on Castaneda, he started receiving the phone calls, these voices. They would know what he was thinking of. Uh, it was a metallic sounding voice. It sounded like your phone was actually a walkie-talkie. It did not have a direct connection. Uh, this great static. And it, each phone call would be literally, you were shaken and uh, it was almost as if something was being drained from you. And I know this from my own personal experience. Can you share with us the first time you personally received a call from the voices? What was the message? How did it feel the same or distinct from a generic call? So it, it was, uh, I thought I mentioned, let me go into uh, a little depth. So when Federico, um, after the voice had said I was part of their group and they were going to fly off to the Yucatan and I wasn't included on the airplane, I came back to my home and that's when I received my, my first call. So that would be the 21st of October, the day after the voice called Federico and said, yes, I was part of it the following, the following day after I dropped off the manila envelope with the notes. Um, after I said, I went back to my home, I received it at my home on my landline, this call. And as Federico had described the call, now I'm hearing it for myself. So for firsthand, when you pick up the phone, you think you're, you know, that crackle sound that uh, walkie-talkie makes, which is not your normal background a blank sound or white noise of a regular phone call or the silence of a phone call, and a metallic voice, like robotic, we are, you know, sort of talking in that tone, 
And I immediately feel like I'm shaking, sweating, profusely sweating, um, kind of stunned. I'm feeling something like I've never felt before to, uh, by receiving this call. They welcomed me, that I, they said I was part of their group, and that I was to stay near the green one. It was uh, the following day Federico let me know that they called him to tell him I'm the pink one. So I got my color the next day. Um, and through Federico. So I and we, we all started knowing our colors. So the voice, they referred to themselves as we. It wasn't, it, even though it sounded like one, I don't want to say masculine, but a it sounded more masculine than feminine, but it was robotic. Now you can hear a computer make that um, years later, when I heard a computer make that, I said, That's, that sounds like the voice. And so metallic voice, making your whole body vibrate. And they knew they right away responded by um, identifying with me. And it was a short phone call, but they, it was a welcome. From that phone call, of course, uh, this is why I had to write a book about this. These phone calls, this identity. So remember, I said this is 1984, October of 84. I went on to receive my last call um, from them in 1988. So we have four years of con continuous phone calls that I receive, sometimes three or four in a day. And then I they, they let me know that they had continued to communicate with me other than the phone afterwards but i'm just giving you it and i it's not like this was a one-time thing this went on for years on a regular basis i didn't even have to respond they would read my thoughts so that was i found very interesting so i would be thinking something and they would answer it and um and they went on and in in these many 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 uh, connections or communications they could see what I was doing. They could see what I was thinking. They would tell me not to cry or whatever I was doing in that moment. They would confirm it. So I felt like I was being watched. So they would literally call you on the phone. They would call me. They used the telephone to communicate. Now, when I had spoken to Federico, um, he always felt it was, and, and also Andrea and Mauricio, they all felt it. You know, Christina, this is Carlos Castaneda. He is playing a trick on you. He's a trickster and um if you of course since then i've researched carlos even more personally not just his books and you know i've had a lot of people say oh you were just fooled this was not an alien experience this was carlos castaneda but i want to tell you this couldn't have been carlos the things that were happening were beyond any one person who could do this make things reappear and disappear in front of my eyes move things know my thoughts to me and they themselves said we have nothing to do with Carlos. So I always believed and to this day that this was an entity of a non-physical being, even though they did appear to me and we'll jump, we'll go further into that. Mm -hmm. I actually, they did appear to me um, 
and they had power. So one of the things when Federica was on his way to America to start this journey, as the calls came in, he was at the airport and somebody came up to him with an envelope. And as soon as Federico took it from him, he kind of snapped out of it. And he said, where am I? What am I doing? Why am I in the Los Angeles airport? I, I live in San Francisco. And he was freaked out, this guy. He had no idea how he was standing there handing this envelope. And then he ran off. And Federico was very like, you know, he didn't know if that was another trickster of Castaneda. But he opens the envelope. There's nothing in it. And he opens it and Andrea says, look, there's a little piece of fabric. He pulls out the size of a, of a stamp. So a, a one by one inch square piece of fabric. Federico's looking at them. What's that all about? And then Andrea said, look, it's the same pattern as your hat. Federico was famous for wearing hats. So he took his hat off and inside the hat was a piece of fabric cut out. And it fit exactly in there. And he was blown away because he never takes that hat off. It's always by his bedside. Um, he is known for wearing, you know, the, these tweed hats. So he was, that was already like, what's this all about? So he was getting notes and signs and signals that he found very bizarre. But again, Andrea and, and um, Maurizio said, this is all Castaneda. How this happened, we don't know, but this is Castaneda. And as I spent time with Federico on my own, we had many, many discussions of what it could be and whatnot. Because they would, they started, and I say they, because when they would, when the voices would call. Now, this is what was interesting, because I received calls and Federico received calls. Um, Ironically, there was only a handful of us that received continual calls. I think I got the most calls, and then Federico, and then Tullio Pinelli, and Brink said, Brink Stevens said she got a call, one call, and somebody else got one call, but I maybe got, I don't know, 100. So, you know, in comparison, Federico got 50. I got, for some reason, they kept telling me what to do so that I would get on Federico's case to get him to do things that they wanted or, or the rest of the, the, the colorful group, if you want to call it, the pack, whatever you want to call us. So um, now let me see. So the thing about the voices is their uncanny ability to be in a room with you, you couldn't see them. That's why I think they're dimensional beings. And, and you know, I, I'm to this day, I'm still exploring how many dimensions there are, where, it, you know, because there's a whole science on 7, 8, 10, 14, you know, we have the, the chakras within us and the seven chakras above us, and we, we operate on a three-dimensional world, but it's proven that microwave and micro and macro sound and all this, these are on other dimensions, light and so forth. So we rely on a three-dimensional world, but we we already know time is on the fourth dimension. So there's a science that is trying to tap into how many dimensions there are. And I truly believe that they are on another dimension. They don't need a physical being now. And this is what they told us. So in the beginning, um, they said, we are here to communicate with you. 
we are not one. We are a collective energy that takes us an enormous amount to make these phone calls and to reach us. They, uh, Federico asked them, what should we call you? What's your name? And they said, you. I didn't know if they mean the letter U or Y-O-U, but you. So we started calling them you. Now, I thought to myself later on, I thought, well, what, why would they call themselves you? And then I thought, well, maybe they're a part of us. You know, when you say thank you, you know, when you refer to someone as you, you're also, it's an element of yourself because you're the you to that other person. So I, to this day, I'm trying to figure out why they used you, but I think they actually are integrating with us on some level because in their, because Tullio Pinelli had asked many questions, you know, how are you? What are you? Are you dead? Are you alive? And they said, no, we were never born and we have never died. We are from a place that always is. So I'm trying to make sense of that. Because these are, and, and I put this in the book, I, um, Tulio was so kind to write down his information, gave it to me, and it's in the book, where, you know, uh, that you will read and see what they told him. And he was one thing great about Tulio, he was very specific in questions, and they were very direct in answering what they were in these three, four-minute phone calls that we were allotted to by them. So that I would say that this, to me, I felt, I used to think they were gaseous beings, that they didn't need a physical body. They could come through walls because I would be in a locked room and then I would see things moving in front of me. Um, then they would call me and tell me they didn't want me to do this. You know, they, they called me, they, you know, in the many calls, um, as I mentioned um, that was, they didn't want me to do drugs. They didn't want me to eat meat. Um, they would tell me if I got very emotional, they'd call me back and they'd say, you don't have to react this way. So I always felt like I was being watched. Um, now, let me jump to a point where while, while I'm in Rome, because after all this has happened and I bonded with Federico, and the voices had said that I should stay with him, I moved to Rome. Because after he finishes these trips, he's not going to make this movie. He's going back to Rome. He's going to start another project, which was going to be Ginger and Fred. Now that he wasn't going to do the Castaneda project, he had another project that he whipped up. And um, I said, I'm going to come to Rome. He said, do. Come. If, I'd love you to come to Rome. And um, a few months later, I'm now, I literally moved to Rome. Because I kept getting um, messages and I kept calling Federico because the voices would call me, call him up and tell him this, call him up and tell him that. And um, they would give him warnings not to do certain things. He would do them and then they'd call me up to tell him, we warned you. Uh, here's an example. Um, while I'm still in L.A. And this was why I knew I had to move to Rome. Uh, I got a call. We warned Federic, we warned the green one not to go and do this thing. So let him know that we warned him. So all right, they hang up. 
So now I'm immediately calling Federico on his home phone. And there was no ringing. All of a sudden, I hear a voice heavily breathing. It's Federico. And I said, Federico, the voice has just called me to tell you. And he starts crying. He said he just picked up the phone to call the ambulance. He fell down the stairs and broke his ankle or twisted his ankle. He was in great pain. He was leaving the door. The voices told him not to do it. So they, he falls down the stairs, twists his ankle, and he just picked up the phone. And there's me without any dialing, tell him the voices. So that was just the timing was. So the, the, there's just so much of those moments. Um, and then I knew I had to, I felt like, because he was, he was distraught. He felt he was being haunted. So I said, I'm coming. And that's where I went on to stay in Rome. And of course, wherever I went, wherever there was a phone, if it was on a pay phone or whatever hotel room I had, if it rang and I, I would always answer the phone, half the time it would be them. How they could find me, how they knew what room number. It couldn't have been Carlos Castaneda because I didn't let anyone know where I was going. I did everything in clandestine purposely to go under their, anybody's radar of where I was and such. Um, here's another example of while I'm in one hotel, I changed several hotels. I finally went into one. I changed several rooms just to throw anybody off who would be watching me. I finally picked a room after the third try. The poor hotel people thought I was just impossible. As soon as the, the bell hop drops off my purses, my bags, the room, he leaves, the phone rings, it's the voices saying that, giving me directions of when I meet the green one, what I need to talk about. So I was like, oh my gosh. So I hang up the phone and I, I picked that hotel because it had an old switchboard hotel with, it, with a, a lady sitting in it with, she got inside calls, like an old switchboard where you plug in the rooms and plug from in and out calls. I purposely picked that. So I, I called the switchboard in the hotel. I said, I just received a call. Can you tell me if it was from inside the hotel or from outside? She goes, I never connected your room to any call. So now I'm like, oh my God, what does that mean? So now this phone is ringing without being connected to anything. Okay. This is more and more of the stuff I was going through. I'm now in Rome and living, staying at the Hotel Raphael, that's the one with the switchboard back then. Now, of course, everything is modernized. And I now am going to meet Federico. He was so happy to see me because he felt like his friends, his family, even Andrea and Maurizio, nobody, everyone thought that this was always Castaneda playing a joke on us because they didn't really get the phone calls. They didn't really feel they weren't the esoterical ones, even though Andrea and Maurizio are, were in the same age group. They were very realist. And here I'm this spiritual kid and Federico's open to the esoteric. So they thought at one point that I was behind that, that Carlos Castaneda and me were friends. We were because all those things that were happening coincidentally um, had to be that I was behind this, that it was me putting up the calls and saying all these things, which was not the case. Believe me, I, I would be telling that story if that was Carlos Castaneda in cahoots, but not at all. <laughs> um, that would have been interesting because, you know, you know, from what I've come to learn with Castaneda, as I said, you know, he was a trickster. And no, at the end of the day, I still am very fascinated by him. I will always think he definitely tapped into something 
um, even if he was um, adapting, I don't want to say plagiarizing, the, the, the sorcery magic that he was learning from, he's still in, in his literary world, in his ability to tell stories, phenomenal. They had me gripped for since the age of 13. And I felt like I could tap into something. So on my own, I had thought, why did they communicate with me? Why did these voices lean towards me, particularly sent me on these mes uh, uh, um, uh, message, um, I would say voyages, these uh, journeys, uh, missions, that's what I want to say. Why they sent me on certain missions, and I'll give you an example of a few. And I thought, well, you know, I've been doing esoteric reading. My, I'm not afraid. I mean, I was intimidated by them, but I was, I kind of believed it. I thought, all right, this is really happening. I'm not imagining this. I'm not on drugs. I'm not doing anything that I can't relate to. So I thought, this is, this is really happening. This is why I spent a whole life being a metaphysician, you know, uh, a clear audience of some kind, you know, of, of hearing things in my own realm when I would do readings. So I thought, oh, I've been preparing for this. And then I would, I also did a lot of trans channeling through um, my youth, even before I met Federico, during, and even to this day, I've, I channel, I kind of go into hypnosis state and see things or, or feel things. So I always felt that they kind of picked me because that's what I was open to, that I was a, they, they knew I would be a willing participant. Now, let me give you some examples that allowed me to be more baffled and yet come up with some explanations. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Christina Engelhart, where her saga with Federico Fellini and non-human intelligences modulates into even more bizarre intensity. For more information on Christina, check the show notes. The Berkshire UFO event occurred September 1st, 1969 and involved numerous towns in the Berkshire area, a multitude of witnesses, including abductees. Among the abductees, Tom Reed. On the Netflix episode devoted to the incidents, Tom Reed spoke a line that really stuck with me, saying, quote, My mother wanted to move here because this was her Norman Rockwell, and this turned it into a Salvador Dali. End quote. The event that changed their hometown from a Rockwell to a Dolly was, of course, the sighting of the craft, his abduction, and the fallout. In his online bio, Tom describes the experience his four family members were a part of as, quote, crushing his belief system, altering his reality, normalcy, and spirit. His recall of September 1st, 1969 is one of an illuminated craft ascending from the water. Their car engulfed in light, weightlessness, then a dead silence, an eruption of crickets, then Tom's standing in an enormous open area, reminiscent of an airplane hangar, grabbed firmly on his left arm and walked to a room where he was placed under cylinder-shaped equipment 
that was lowered from above. An unbearable pain was described as boiling water running throughout the body's arms and upper back while restrained to a chair. He and his brother both recall seeing what resembled a very large and weird insect. The family now back in their station wagon, but his mother and grandmother's locations are reversed, with his mother now in the passenger seat. End quote. The phrase Tom used, they took a Norman Rockwell and turned it into a Salvador Dali, makes me envision the non-human entities as painters of inner scapes, theirs colliding with ours, changing both. Maybe they wield the weird like a palette knife. Knowing high strangeness alters whomever it brushes against. They paint on mind and time itself. Slathering temporal dysmorphia over unsuspecting figures. What strange murals might span eons and realms beyond the purview of we mere characters in such a story? That night in the Berkshires, a few minutes of contact is still coloring generations of lives. They found a Rockwell and left a dolly. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and anomalous experiences. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or check the show notes. Take a coin, toss it. If it lands, become a patron of the show. Whatever that coin is, move the decimal point four places to the left And that's what your monthly patronage should be. As an artist, this is what I call the Pythagorean imperative, an indulgence offered in a state of aphasia. Sleep. Water is away. It isn't done.
And now I dive into this mystery, into this place that has no history, that has no face. Everything but water will be erased as I dive. The water is awake. The water is alive. 